Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, a special segment from the Queen City to see how the OWN Network's TV series Delilah has highlighted historically black neighborhoods in Charlotte and created opportunities for local artists and the city. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. A special segment coming up highlights the city of Charlotte and a sneak peek at Stephanie Mills' Juneteenth music video. But first, as communities prepare for Juneteenth celebrations around the country with President Biden's signature on Thursday, Juneteenth is now a national holiday. Juneteenth commemorates the day, June 19, 1865, when federal troops delivered news that all slaves are free. Months later, the 13th Amendment was ratified, abolishing slavery for all states. What will be the impact? Here to share her perspective on it. I want to welcome anti-racism coach and journalist Courtney Napier. So glad to have you, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me, Deborah. Certainly. Now, this measure was introduced by Texas Representative Sheila Jackson. What do you think the value and significance is of establishing Juneteenth as a federal holiday? Well, I mean, two things. I believe it is it is absolutely worth celebrating. We our ancestors, our elders, have fought a really long time for this to happen. That's something that's near and dear to my heart, is listening to the stories of black elders, those before us who have fought for freedoms of all sorts for us as African-Americans. And so for Opal Lee, the, the mother of Juneteenth, as she is called, to be able to live long enough to see something that she fought so hard for come to pass, that's a beautiful thing, and we should celebrate with her. Why would you say this is a holiday for everyone in America to celebrate? And exactly what's being celebrated? Well, what's being celebrated is the end of what we call America's original sin, the end of chattel slavery in the United States. And that's something that we should all be proud of, seeing that peculiar institution come to an end. Um, I know that there's a lot of reactions and a lot of feelings around this holiday becoming a national holiday. and. Um, some black folks fear that it will become commercialized and capitalized upon. But I believe that we should not allow those fears to cloud the opportunity that awaits with this becoming a national holiday. It, we're, it's going to be what we make it. It's always going to be what we make it. And I think we should take the time to celebrate that. And I want to focus on the fact that this is a national holiday for everyone to celebrate. And right. some may feel that, you know, how am I supposed to feel if I'm not a descendant of enslaved people? What am I celebrating? Well, um, we are celebrating a, a collective decision. So when the 13th, Amend 13th Amendment was ratified, that was all of Congress voting to ratify this amendment. And so this is an American holiday because it took Americans to end slavery. And so, yes, we should all be excited. We should all be um, feel that we can and should be celebrating the end of an institution that made it legal to force human beings to work against their will in a very, very violent and horrible way. Um, that should be something that we should all celebrate. And I'm thinking also that it's, you know, a celebration of our highest ideals as a nation, as Americans, mm -hmm. freedom for all, freedom and liberty. And uh, when everyone is free, then all of us are free. And when any of us are not free, then really none of us are free. So uh, celebrating that liberty, and, and when I speak of, uh, when we talk about the liberty of our nation and independence, <clears throat> how might this move, celebrating Juneteenth, um, conflict or 
stand against uh, Independence Day, the 4th of July? Yeah, that's important. I think what you said is really important that all of our, our liberation is connected. So when none of us is free until all of us are free, and I believe that's such an important point that you made. But anybody who's grown up in an African-American household knows that we've always celebrated Fourth of July maybe a little differently, or at least many of us have. Um, for some of us, it might not have been, you know, going to parades and, and, and seeing fireworks. It might just have been an, an opportunity for us to have a day off work and long enough to gather with family and travel, to have family reunions and so forth. And so as, as African-Americans, we've always, several holidays on the calendar have, have always been a little different. And I think this is an opportunity for, for the rest of the nation to realize that um, our, our stories are connected, but our, our entry points into liberty and freedom are different. And, and we need to wrestle with that. And it's an important wrestling for all of us. Now, as an anti-racism coach, how will <laughs> recognizing this as a holiday kind of fit into what it is that you're teaching um, about anti-racism and, and how people can um, really create impact from this? It's one thing to have a holiday, but I mean, what does this really mean? What's the impact of, of Juneteenth for all of us in, in your teaching with anti-racism? Yeah, for with a lot of my clients, the question always comes out and say, I, I care, I know the history, I care about the history, I want to see, you know, equality and equity, but what do I do? How do I do that? And I believe Juneteenth, this becoming a, a, a national holiday, is a great opportunity to take some time, sit back and reflect, are you um, soliciting black-owned businesses? Um, look at the makeup of your of your companies, your corporations, your organizations. Is there equity as far as who's hired and where? Um, what do your pol do your policies actual you know the weight of your policies match your values? So you say you are about equity, but what's the pay structure? You know what you know what types of time off are you offering folks? Those types of things, and I and I believe that it's a moment to reflect. Juneteenth is a beginning, right? It's, a, it's the beginning of our freedom journey. It is not by any means the end. And so we all have a part to play in, in, in furthering liberation where we are. In just a few seconds left, what do you think that this federal holiday will mean for efforts to control what history is taught in public schools? Well, I think it's an important conflict. We needed this conflict. I, I believe it was a power play, absolutely a political play by the Senate, but it is an important conflict now within our school system to say we, we aren't comfortable with our full history, but now we have to grapple with the meaning of Juneteenth. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how, it is, uh, how it's dealt with, but we needed this point of conflict in, in, our certain, in our situation right now. Well, Courtney Napier, thank you so much for your insights and for joining us. Thank you for having me, Deborah. always. In the midst of a global pandemic during the summer of racial reckoning, the Queen City played host to the filming of a television series by Oprah's network own. Delilah is a drama about a black woman lawyer working and raising a family in Charlotte. To bring it to life authentically, series creator Craig Wright tapped an executive producer who not only called North Carolina home, but who also believed strongly that representation matters. I visited Charlotte and sat down with the EP Charles Randolph Wright and others to find out how he perceived representation and created access with Delilah and continues to do so. Why was Charlotte chosen as the destination for this production, but also as the, the real life city in this drama? Craig had picked Charlotte because he had been reading about it and about what has happened in this city, what's happening in North Carolina. I went, Charlotte, 
North Carolina, Charlotte. And they said, yes. And I said, you know where I'm from, right? That's my home. Well, I grew up in York, South Carolina, which is just south of Charlotte. So Charlotte was my, my city. Charlotte is where I saw my first Broadway show, my first concert, everything. Everything I did was here. I worked at Carowinds in the summer, so it was, it was my home. And then I went to Duke University, so I'm, I'm a Carolina man in so many ways. And I keep saying to people, it's so thrilling now to be proud of my states because for so long I felt I had to apologize about from whence I came because of all the things that were happening. And now to see how things are turning, how things are changing, it's very exciting to be a part of that. We are coming into ourselves as the 15th largest city in the nation. Uh, that this is a setting that people are becoming much more familiar with, not just in North Carolina, but around the country and around the world. The folks over at Warner Brothers, the, the folks over at um, OWN, Oprah Winfrey Network, I think we're wise enough to say, hey, this is an up and coming market, um, and this is a new setting. This is a new character uh, and, 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 and to tell stories with and from. Um, and I think that was really the most important reason um, why this, this, this series has been set here. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a very, as uh, Charles says, a, a blackly black city, but people don't necessarily always think about that um, because it's, it, is, it is very, very layered. And we're a city that um, has had the ability for black people to, um, to, to be leaders from a, a, an elected position. I'm grateful that I'm not breaking any ceilings. Maybe our, our mayor is, um, but I'm not breaking any, black, any ceilings by being a black council member. That is something that this city is used to. So we have folks from the grassroots to the, to, to the grass tops. Notes of these historically black neighborhoods are weaved throughout the TV drama Delilah. The big law firm where Delilah's best friend Tamara practices was filmed in Uptown Charlotte, also called Second Ward, which was once the black neighborhood Brooklyn. Dr. Willie Griffin, executive director of the Levine Museum of the New South, has studied Charlotte's history extensively. You know, there's a long history of um, black community building around um, Uptown Charlotte. Uh, Brooklyn um, started off as Logtown. Brooklyn was what, probably the largest black community in North or South Carolina. Um, and people are probably familiar with the terms urban renewal because they affected cities all across the country, um, particularly black communities. And following the destruction or raising of, of, of um, Brooklyn in the 1950s, you begin to see this um, string of black neighborhoods that begin to develop along the west side of what we call the West End Corridor. Um, along Fort Road. The West End area is near where Delilah's father-in-law, the police chief, lives. This part of Charlotte is considered the seat of the city's civil rights movement, as it was the home of Dorothy Counts, the first black student to integrate Mecklenburg County schools, and that of Johnson C. Smith University students who led the city's first sit-in. But the characters from Delilah, by profession, by social status, and attitude, very much reflect the character of the African-Americans who settled these neighborhoods. Dr. Griffin says the story of urban renewal helps connect the dots. We have to remember that the highways that were built as a result of urban renewal, they cut through other black neighborhoods, black communities like Greenville and Macquarie Heights. Macquarie Heights was a middle, upper middle class black neighborhood um, started by the, the president of, of Johnson C. Smith. And when urban renewal hit, 
um, it cut through um, a good portion of Macquarie Heights. And so these were homes of affluent African-Americans who had um, means to, to um, sort of push back against what was happening. And you had at least four of those homes um, that were in um, Macquarie Heights originally, um, the owners were able to physically move their homes um, several miles down um, Betis Fort Road and started um, Hyde Park. Hyde Park is founded in the, in the um, 1960s, mid-1960s, and it is to date the most influential or affluent black community in the city, um, full of um, large ranch homes. A lot of the homes were designed by Harvey Gantt, um, so you had architects living, artists living in the community, um, dentists, lawyers, um, a, a lot of uh, just the most influential um, African-Americans in the city made this their home. Nancy Weber is a real-life resident of Hyde Park. We have beautiful trees, and, and, and the sweet part about Hyde Park, too, is there's still nature there. Because of the architectural design of our neighborhood, there's no house the same. They are all custom-built and there were uh, professional people that were looking for places to live, uh, educators, uh, doctors, uh, lawyers, and some just regular people, you know, that without any particular profession. But they were good people who were looking for a better life for their children and something that they could pass on to their children. I appreciate the fact that they chose uh, our neighborhood to f do some of the feminine because we're like a we are like a hidden jewel that everybody doesn't know about. Also, somewhat hidden is knowledge about the Black historical roots of Charlotte. Its truth brought to light by the modern social justice movement. In 2016, after the death of Keith Lamont Scott, um, we had a week of, of demonstrations. And the young people um, who led uh, that movement um, decided, you know, it was very important uh, to, to demonstrate here in Uptown Charlotte. It was a place where uh, they didn't feel welcomed. This place was, was really built, it felt like, it's, it's, it, it, for many different reasons, it, it, it felt like and, and still does feel like um, that this is not a place for young black folks. And so as we were walking through these streets of Brevard, 3rd Street, Trade and Tryon, you know, when we were yelling, whose streets are streets, whose streets are streets, when I started doing my research, when I started trying to figure out what I was doing in, in, in this movement and what, what, you know, what were these forces that I was feeling, it was like a light bulb went off. Like, that wasn't rhetoric, it was really true. These were the streets that we belonged on, but we have been pushed out. And that inertia doesn't go away, <laughs> you know? That feeling of being pushed out, being moved away from something that, uh, that calls to you is something that exists in our, in our neighborhoods all around Charlotte today. And our young people, again, feel that. That spirit of reclamation reawakened the summer Delilah entered production with the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and intensity of COVID spread. I always talk about we have two pandemics. We have a health pandemic and a race pandemic. And they, they've influenced each other in ways beyond anything you can imagine. And so all of our work now has happened 
in a reflection of that. Interestingly, I'm working on a project about the Harlem Renaissance, and the Harlem Renaissance happened after the pandemic in 1918. And people don't realize what happened, the way art exploded out of that, the Roaring Twenties, Harlem Renaissance, that happened after a pandemic. So I feel that we are due an explosion beyond what we've ever had before. And what George Floyd did, especially in our industry, is call out our, our industry. Because people think, because of what we do, who we are, that this world of, of entertainment is very liberal and open, and it's not. I've been hired only in my career of decades by two people who look like me. And that was Barry Gordy and Oprah Winfrey. And what that means when you don't see someone who looks like you, it, it makes you feel that you are not being seen. And what this did for me shooting in Charlotte was I was the person in charge to be sure that people were seen. So in the show of Delilah, especially the women in that and the men in that, but the women, it's mainly about the women, were women I knew. They were women with whom I went to college. They're the women in my family. And you don't typically see that. And as Southern black women, we're typified in ways, Southern black women and men. We're pretty, it's the way we are depicted is often very negative. It's, it's often in this realm of trauma, in this realm of degradation. And especially during this pandemic, I want to find joy. And you can find joy in all kinds of ways. And Charles found joy close by by intentionally choosing North Carolina talent to fill character roles, like Delilah's nephew Dion Connolly, played by Khalil Johnson of Pineville, Delilah's friend Mace by actor Joe Holt of Raleigh, and Delilah's daughter Maya, played by newcomer and Charlotte native Kelly Jacobs. I was so thrilled in the opening of Delilah, the mother's trying to get ready for work and get her kids ready to go to school. And there's a daughter who's 16 who's playing violin. And from that very first page, I was in love. I thought this image is amazing. And I thought, I have to find this violinist in Charlotte. Well, did you have an opportunity to work directly with Charles, right? Of course, yeah. What's he like? He is the most encouraging person I know. <laughs> he, his words are so inspiring every single day, and he just makes me want to do better. <laughs> How do you describe your city, Charlotte? I would say ambitious. I would say ambitious. The people here, so talented. Me and Maya, I would say the only thing we have in common is the violin. But other than that, we're pretty much opposites. Um, but no, Maya shows ambition. She shows determination and the effort that she puts into following her dream is something that I would say represents my generation, my up and coming generation a lot these days of really putting forth the effort and going through hardships to achieve what you want. 
filming in Charlotte provided a way for Kelly to explore acting at home. Delilah also drew back to home Joe Holt, who had left North Carolina to pursue his dreams in New York and L.A. Joe Holt and I did a project, a stage um, musical years ago in New York, and I hadn't seen Joe in a long time. And so when the actors came in, we were auditioning, and, and his tape came in, I went, oh, my God, Joe Holt. So from that second on, I was determined he has to do this role. I walked in the door uh, on the first day of shooting. He's like, come here, you. And I'm like, what's up, man? Uh, and aside from his Duke heritage, he's a great guy. He's had uh, multiple experiences in every phase of entertainment. He's been an actor, producer, director. So you feel a tremendous amount of trust and support. It's interesting because he's this detective type and it's so, that detective typically you see in film noir. It's that kind of great character that we don't ever get to play. I never thought of playing Mace as a certain kind of guy. I saw the words on the page and I saw the things that he did and that created a person to me that was a lot of fun. You know, I think of Mace as a detective that has like a bourbon bottle in his desk, you know, and at the end of the day, he's having a couple of slugs going out to a gin joint. Like, that's who Mace is. Joe got to bring this character and became a fan favorite on the show. I hate telling him that, but he became a fan favorite because he just had this quality that you don't see. No Land Rover? Nope, but there is an ambulance. Leah may be on to something, D. Why? What happened? Gary Shea's dead. Even though I said the four women were the leads, the men were very powerful and different. And it was important to me that they were the men that I knew. My connection to North Carolina is that both my parents are from Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I have a lot of family from North Carolina going way back. Uh, my sister, who you may know, uh, went to St. Augustine's. Stop it. <laughs> For those who, of you who don't know, Joe's my brother. <laughs> and my sister told me not to look directly into the camera. So <laughs> that was really useful. But I can do it because I'm the producer. You're the producer and I'm not, so I can't do this. <laughs> what are your thoughts about opportunities for actors of color in general? It's pretty obvious that the playing field is more limited for people of color. Uh, just look at your TV and you can see that, although that's improving and that's what I'm hopeful about. I think the larger problem is the way that people of color are seen is still very stereotypical. It's still very um, uh, kind of cliched and we need to have the opportunity to play all kinds of characters. There's still a long way to go. Uh, this business is not an altruistic one. It's a money business, and that's what's unfortunate. But we need more and more people in, um, in higher positions. We need more and more showrunners. We need more and more creators of color so that we can start telling those stories. And to get a job working in my home state was, I was just incredibly grateful. Um, it was a, a wonderful gift to come my way, uh, which was, as most things in this business, some combination of earned and luck. And uh, I was just thrilled. You are not finished with Charlotte. No. And you are here again for a very special purpose. Tell me the concept behind your video and why you want to debut it the weekend of Juneteenth. Stephanie Mills is an artist who, of course, we all adore. And Stephanie Mills is an, a friend of mine, dear friend of mine. And she said, oh, I'm working on something. So she sent this song to me and I called Let's Do the Right Thing. And 
it floored me. And I thought, this, this is an anthem. I never wanted to really come out and record again. I had said I wasn't going to record an album or a single, so, but I was so inspired by Charles and, and Marcus and working with him, I, I was inspired to do it. And I just kept writing and writing, and we have like seven, eight songs now. So she's written all this music now, so this weekend we're shooting a video for her song, Let's Do the Right Thing. And I was inspired by all the Black Lives Matter paintings all over the world when they painted the streets. So I'm using four local artists in this video who are all painting their idea of Stephanie as she's singing this anthem. We've been terrorized for the last four years and especially this year and a half with the pandemic and having another person in the White House. And there's no way I could not write a song about what's going on in our world. So that was very important to me. And I feel like as our community, the black community, we need to do the right thing for us and stop looking to others to help us, to pull us up. We need to come together and do what we need to do for us. You know, on Juneteenth, let's do the right thing. Stephanie Mills returning. She, as she said, she's walking into her purpose because we all, have to be responsible. We all have to do something. We, we can't just sit back and, and let what happens happen. We have to shift, we have to change things. And as Stephanie wrote in this, we have to do the right thing, we do. Each of us. Yes. Each of us. We all went in the end. We need to do the right thing. There's no need to fear. We have the strength. I want to thank today's guests and especially the Foundation for the Carolinas and Brooklyn Collective for hosting us in Charlotte. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram with the hashtag Black Issues Forum. Watch anytime on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen back on Apple iTunes, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Finally, wishing everyone happy Juneteenth. And to all the dads, a happy Father's Day. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.